time for a new series of messages. So we are going to open up a new series of messages in the uh, New Testament book of Mark, the book of Mark. I've never preached through the book of Mark, so we're going to start doing that uh, this year. We'll see how far we get into it this year, and uh, we're going to look at the first number of verses uh, this day, today. I'm listing 13 verses, but I won't get through all of those today. We'll just, we'll just see how far we can go. I'm going to call this message, A Fire is Unleashed, Mark 1, 1 through 13. Well, probably, if I were to ask you a question, who would you like to meet from history? You would come up with an interesting name or two. Somebody either still living or somebody that lived a long time ago. It'd be interesting to know, who would you like to meet? If you could meet anybody from history, I'm sure I would come up with a, a, a wonderful list of names from everyone here. And it would be so much fun for me personally to know who you would like to meet and to, to know why you would like to meet that person. I could come up with a few people on my list. I, one person I think I'd like to meet if I could, and I can't, but if I could, would be a fellow who's, who, uh, whose life we really remember tomorrow. He's got a federal holiday named after him, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, his, his, uh, his life ended uh, tragically 50 years ago this April. He was assassinated in April of 1968. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of his death, but he did a lot of significant things to promote racial reconciliation in this country and really around the world. And probably one of the things he's most famous for, most well-known for, is the I Have a Dream speech. And as I look around here, I see some, some of you that are so young, you probably have only heard about that or you've read about it in the history books. Some of you have maybe seen the video clips of it. And I don't have the video to show you, but I'll give you just two or three slides that have some of my favorite excerpts from that speech. It was given in 1963, and so obviously a long time ago. But uh, think of just the poignancy of, and, the, and the practicality and the fairness and really the biblical justice of, of these statements he made. He said, let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. And he was saying that as a racially oppressed person. And he was, he was really protesting for peaceful, peaceful means of reconciliation, not violence. It was, I mean, that was a, a beautiful statement to make. He said, I have a dream that one day our nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And then there's this one. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that was over 50 years ago that he uttered those words. And today we know that much of his dream was not fulfilled all of these years later, and some of it was. Less than a year after the I Have a Dream speech, the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 became a reality. And historians tell us that the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech of 1963 was one lead-up, was one component that helped lead to the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which put a stop to racial segregation in schools, in businesses, in public places. We rejoice in that. And yet, 50 years since MLK's death, I'll say it again, much too little of his vision, of reconciliation has been accomplished, and yet the dream hasn't died. 
And here in our own church congregation, I'm so happy as a pastor that I can say this after two decades here, that I've never witnessed more togetherness and more diversity in this congregation than, I, than has probably ever existed in our over 100-year history, and I'm so delighted at that. At one of our recent visitor dinners of maybe two, three months ago, I must have heard three or four different languages being spoken around the tables. I rejoiced in that. I'm so grateful for that. Now, you might not think much of that, but I do, because I just see that that's an expression of, that we're not just a homogenous congregation of just local yokels, of, of people from here, like me. We're, we're attracting people from everywhere, which is, which is really who we are anyway, but we want to be a church that is representative of the kingdom, which is very diverse, by the way. And I know that we believe that. I'm not convincing, uh, trying to convince you of something you don't already know. We want our church to be a reflection of what heaven will be like. You know, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, tells us that heaven will be populated with people from all people groups. St. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, tells us in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. They were all crying out together with one voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God. The unity, the fullness, the full representation of all humanity calling out together to one God who sits on the throne, calling out to him in worship. Beautiful reality. That's God's vision for humanity, that all, all are to call upon him. There's one creator, and we're all made in his image. So gratefully, as we celebrate MLK Day tomorrow, that there are parts of MLK's dream that have come true, not enough of it, but gratefully, some of it has. There's some progress. There's, there's some hope. You know, there's another person from history <clears throat> that I'd love to meet. Now, his time in history goes back a, long, a lot further than MLK. Uh, he's a character from the Bible that we read about in Mark chapter 1. John is his name. Now, there's more than one John in the Bible, but the one I'm referring to here is John the Baptizer. John the Baptist. Colorful guy. Kind of a strange guy, you might say. You read about him in John chapter 1. It says that he wore clothing of camel's hair. It says that he ate locusts. You know what locusts are? They're bugs. And, and, and honey. You know, locusts, they would be kind of crunchy in your mouth. And I, I wonder if he cooked them at all. But anyway, it's kind of, sorry, it's kind of close to lunchtime maybe to be talking about this. But, you know, what kind of guy was this? You might be saying, why would you want to meet that guy? He sounds like kind of a freak. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, it, it sounds, sounds strange, but what kind of guy was this? You know what? He was the real deal. Jesus himself said about John the Baptist, he said, among, among men born of women, there's no greater man that was born than John the Baptist. Well, that's a pretty high comment. I don't think John was trying to make a fashion statement by dressing kind of weird. I think he knew who he was. I think that while he looked a lot like Elijah, that prophet from earlier on in the Old Testament, Elijah the Tishbite, 
He looked a lot like him. In fact, Jesus called him like Elijah. He said he's a lot like Elijah. He's got similarity in, in so many ways, even in his mission. I think that he was a man of the soil and of the earth, and he was the real deal, and he didn't have to put on any eccentricities or look like the religious elite up in Jerusalem. It says that he lived in the wilderness, and he dressed like it, and he looked like it, but he was full of the Spirit of God. And he himself was what the Bible would call the forerunner to Jesus, to the Messiah. God used John the Baptist to be the herald the announcer, the one who went ahead of the Messiah and announced the arrival of Jesus on the scene. Mark chapter 1 captures the story. I tell you what, God gave John the baptizer a pretty big privilege. Think what you will of him. Think what you may say what you will of the guy. Think about how strange his diet was and how weird he might have looked. I'd say that privilege that he had was pretty significant, that God chose him to announce to the world, here's your Messiah. That's a pretty, that's a pretty high honor. Let's read about it. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, let me go slow here. Isaiah the prophet lived 700 years before Mark wrote this. The people listening to this gospel who first read it or first heard it read to them, first century Jews, they knew that prophecy. And, so they, and they knew their history. They were waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so now they're having it presented to them. They are hearing it now either, again, read to them or they're reading it after Mark writes it down. And so it's very familiar to them, more so than it is to you and to me. And so they're hearing it stated to them. They're saying, okay, we know that prophecy, and Mark is restating it to us, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Okay, yeah, 700 years ago he said this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. And it's actually two prophecies. It's from Isaiah chapter 40. It's also from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So there's two prophecies in one here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Who's the messenger? That's the forerunner, the person that will be going ahead of the Messiah to announce his arrival. Behold, God says, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, in ancient cultures, many times when a dignitary, such as a king, was going to go to a city, a forerunner, a royal emissary, would be sent ahead to prepare the way, to make sure there were no road obstacles, to make, the, to make sure the city was ready to welcome the king. It would be pretty embarrassing for the king to show up, and, and things weren't prepared. Things weren't in order. Well, guess who's coming to town? The long-awaited Jewish Messiah. God wants the city to be ready. He wants circumstances to be ready. But instead of getting the road conditions right, God's going to send an emissary not to get the road right, but to get people's hearts ready. Because the king is coming to help people get their spiritual houses in order, not to get a physical road ready. And so that was prophesied well before Jesus showed up. Behold, I send my messenger. God says, I'm, when, when the Messiah comes, I'm sending somebody ahead of him. And so that was prophesied clearly. 
And that's what we just read. He, he, will, he will be one who will have a voice who, that cries in the wilderness. You're getting a picture that's emerging here of a unique character, a burly kind of guy. Hmm. He's going to be identified here in a few verses, isn't he? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's going to be his message. Uh-oh, we have an identification here. Verse 4, John appeared. Now Mark, John Mark, the author of this gospel, is identifying the one who fulfills the prophecy. He's telling his, his listeners, he's saying, John the baptizer appeared. He's the one. He's the messenger, is what he's telling his audience. John appeared. He's the messenger that Isaiah predicted, that the Old Testament prophesied and Malachi predicted. He appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, that was a very foreign thing to a Jew. A Jew, a practicing Jew, a devout Jew, knew nothing of this type of thing before then or since then. Christians understand baptism in a pretty traditional sense or, or some form of immersion baptism. We understand this type of baptism very clearly. as Well, actually, the baptism we practice is not clearly this either, but it's, it, it has its origins in this type of baptism and that it's immersion. But this baptism of repentance was very unique. It wasn't practiced by Jews before or since. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that, that in a little bit. But it says it was for the forgiveness of sins. It didn't literally cleanse them of sin, but it was to show that they had repented of sin. God was putting something in front of his people that was very significant and very humbling. He was summoning his people by sending John the Baptist in front of them before, just before Jesus showed up on the scene. Now remember, Jesus was already alive, right? His earthly ministry didn't begin until he was about age 33. He was living in Nazareth. Before he showed up on the shores of the Jordan River, he was already alive. But so before he comes out and identifies himself as Jesus uh, of Nazareth and, and begins to show, and call disciples, John goes ahead of him. And he challenges the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding area to repent of sin. And that's, what, that's what's happening here. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Not an easy thing for them to do. Believe me, it was not. If you read the other gospel accounts of Matthew's gospel and Luke and John, you see even more of the direct words that, that came from John the Baptist's mouth. He preached to them before they were baptized. He convicted, their hearts were convicted. He said, you, you're living half-hearted lives. Your religion is pretty faithless. You're into outward show of religion. He said, you need to get right. Stop cheating your neighbors. There were a lot of things he was mentioning to them, and they heard him. They listened to him well. And then he said, to show that you really are sorry, you need to be baptized. You need to go under the water here. And, and, and you need to get your heart ready because the king is coming. And they listened. Many of them listened confessing their sins. And so verse 6, it gives us a little bit of who he was again, at least outwardly, his picture. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. I want to go backward here a little bit more. Um, let me take you back to verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. I don't want us to lose sight of why that's important. Why, why are we in the wilderness here? What would be the significance of that for the Jew? If you know their history a little bit, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, didn't they? 
on their way to the promised land. And why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? Because they, were, they had been in a state of rebellion on their way from Egypt. After 430 years in Egypt, when the Lord led them out of Egypt and that great oppression, he led them out of that slavery under the hand of Moses, and he led them out and, and through the, the Red Sea, and he wanted to get them directly to the promised land in, in just literally days. But they had to take a circuitous route because they were disobedient. And God humbled them and tested them, and it took 40 years for them to get over there to the promised land. And they finally got through there under Joshua. But now God was summoning them, saying, now I'm sending my Messiah. And the state of their spiritual lives, again, was not in a good place. He brought them back to the wilderness. He said, you're coming back to the Jordan, and you're going to go in the water again, and you're going to repent again. And then my king is coming to summon you. My Messiah is coming, but I want your hearts to get ready. So he sends John to them, and soon Jesus comes. Well, let me get, get caught up here with the slides. I'm comparing just momentarily the stories of MLK and John the Baptist. Both events bring promise, fulfillment, and conflict. I'm sorry I'm a little bit slow here on my slides. I'll, I'm going to fly through a few of these. MLK says, I have a dream, and there was progress towards some of the fulfillment of that. John the Baptist has has the, the promise of prophecy. We see fulfillment coming true in chapter 1 here of Mark. We also see conflict as a result of the fulfillment of both dreams of MLK, which still isn't ended, sadly, a, a lot of the racial conflict that we have in our times. And the conflict that comes with, with Christianity is probably just beginning to, to show itself here in America, but it shows itself up around the world uh, all the time. The name of Jesus brings peace to many, and it brings conflict to many. But we look, we look on at our slides here. We be, Mark begins his message with the statement of a dream fulfilled, a prophecy. And we've covered that. The good news, the gospel itself, as you look at verse 1 of, of Mark's gospel, is in the Greek, it's euangelion. That's how you'd pronounce that word. And it simply means glad tidings. It means good news or glad tidings. It's not a Christian word in its origins. Uh, the Greeks looked at the announcement of a king's victory, and they called that glad news or good news. They looked at the birth of a young emperor, who, a man who would become emperor. They said that's the announcement of a birth, a birth announcement. That's glad tidings. The Christians of the day took that word, euangelion, because the New Testament's written in Greek. They said glad tidings, and they said, we're going to Christianize that, and go back to Mark 1 with me for a moment. Mark 1, 1. I know I'm going back and forth here like ping pong ball with you, but I want to really unpack this for you. And they, they Christianized euangelion. See it? Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said the, the glad tidings, the word gospel or euangelion, glad tidings, they said, we're gonna, they said it's more than the announcement of a, of a king. They said if, if in secular culture it's good news, or glad tidings, they said, here's, for Christians, they said, here's our glad tidings, the beginning of the glad tidings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not, not this king of, of Greece, or the king of this empire, or the king of Rome, but the Son of God. See what they did with it? They Christianized the word. So in Greek culture, it just means good news, but in, in Christian writing, it means the good news of God's Son. It's the ultimate good news. It's huge. Don't miss that. Mark is saying, as he writes this thing out, 
He's saying, this is the ultimate good news, friends. God has come. God has come into history. This is the best good news possible because it's the gospel, not of the birth of a king, but the king. God has broken into history. He sent his son, and, and Mark doesn't, doesn't miss it. He goes, this good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And I'll just keep moving here. So you have in this scripture the promised royal herald, Malachi 3.1. God says, I send my messenger. He's identified as John, the baptizer. And we move along here. The royal herald's unvarnished message to the Jews, ready your heart with repentance. Show your sincerity that you're, you're really ready to meet the Messiah. Show, show that by the outward evidence of baptism. Show that there's an inward change, that you're serious, that you're really, you're really serious with, with the Lord. You want to meet him. You're ready for him. And preparing for the way for the Lord is to do away with their apathy, their half-hearted devotion. You know, Jesus didn't have a different message, did he? He challenged the religious people of his day. He said, you guys look so good on the outside, but inwardly, he said, you're, you're really corrupt. He, and he challenged them to get real. He said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And today, sadly, in so many corners, at least of, of our culture, we hear things like the prosperity gospel. Where does that come from? Jesus never preached that. He preached a message of repentance. Anyway, I'm going to come back to this. John was a humble man, John the Baptist. He knew his place. He says, I've baptized you with water. He says, simple, I'm nobody. When he said, let's come back to the scripture itself. He says, uh, I want to go back to where I left, left you here. It says, uh, after me, go to verse 7. He says, and he preached, saying, after me comes he, and he's speaking, of course, of Christ. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Friends, that is not false humility. He's not saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm just a, he's not trying to be, sound humble. He says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There couldn't be a, a greater contrast. He's saying, it's like when I go in that tank behind that screen and I baptize somebody. That's with water, right? But he says, the guy that's following me, when he touches your life, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can't, touch, I can't touch that. When he touches your life, it's with the power of God. So let me just get out of the way now. I'm just here. I'm just a herald. I am just here to tell you who's coming. I'm just here to say, get your heart right. Please get ready. Because when he comes, man, he's not messing around. He wants you to be ready. Get your heart ready for him. I'm not worthy to untie that guy's sandals. He knew who he was, and he knew who was coming. No, make no mistake about it. No false humility here with this man named John the Baptist. I love this, this guy. Someone greater than John the Baptist has arrived on the scene. Very much so. And then we come down to verse 9. As John goes through, he must have baptized thousands of people. We're not given the count here, right? But thousands of people, there's no question of that. Probably tens of thousands. But then Jesus comes on the scene at the right time. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. That's his boyhood home. 
he grew to adulthood in Nazareth. He came, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Not that he had to repent of any sin. We see in the other Gospels that he did it to fulfill all righteousness is what Jesus said. Because John said, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus would become our sin bearer. He identified with us to the fullest extent, even in being baptized. Because he identified with our sin. And then verse 10 says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I want to touch on just a couple quick things before we go. Malachi 3.1 also says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. I want you to see that, what I highlighted there or, or made in bold. The messenger is John the Baptist, okay? We see that fulfilled here. Again, that's written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up in Malachi 3.1. It's fulfilled, as Mark writes it down. The Lord you are seeking, the passage is ultimately about the coming of the Messiah. The Lord you are seeking will come. When did Jesus go to the temple? If it says that, he should have fulfilled it, right? Well, he did. He did. Mark doesn't mention it, does he? At least not immediately in the gospel that we're reading. But it is fulfilled. And if, if the screen will advance, I'll show you that. There it is. John chapter 2, one of the first things Jesus did after his ministry began, he went to the temple and he cleared the temple, just like Malachi predicted. Only John tells us why he went to the temple. He went to it to clear it because there, were, there was a lot of bad stuff going on there. And Jesus cleared it and he says, why are you doing this? This is my father's house. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And people challenged him, and they said, with what authority are you doing this? And he said, this is my father's house, and you're turning it into a market. What does that point to? It points you and I to the identity of Jesus. We've just looked at that one, so let me just move on. I want to end with this today, my friends. Jump to the middle of the book. Mark chapter 8 is really the, the resting point for our message today, the final point that we rest on. It's really the kind of the... The, the climactic middle point of this book of Mark, Peter tells Jesus who he believes Jesus to be. Because Jesus asked the question, he said, who do men say that I am? And Jesus, as he po points that question to the disciples, Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ. And Jesus accepts that title. He affirms that. He said, you're right. Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. And that reality, friends, has unleashed a fire of love and truth into the world that is with us today. And that love and truth is alive in many of our hearts here today. It's changed your life. It's changed mine. For many of us, we could say that. I pray that you're not letting it die down or go asleep. Don't let your love for Jesus die down in this new year. If you belong to Jesus, keep following him. For someone here today, maybe you've not made that step to believe on him. So that's the question I have to, to put up there first is my final slide here. Have you believed on him? Do you know Jesus as your personal forgiver, as your savior? If you don't, 
please see me after the service. I'll have no greater joy than to show you how to know him. If you do know him, the question is, is are you following him? It's, it's one thing to know him in your heart. It's another thing to follow him. Uh, this gospel of Mark is going to challenge us to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the call to follow. It's one thing to, to understand uh, personal forgiveness. It's another thing to follow you with our whole life. And there's no greater joy than to walk in your way, to walk in your goodness, to follow the one who made us for himself. Would you go with us now as we leave this place? Thank you so much for giving us the, the, the life to start a new year. Might we not use this year for just selfish, personal pursuits, but for, for the life that you've given us to live for you. Show us how. Show us new things this year that would make this year our best year, a life that's lived for you, a life that's lived in service to you and others. Thanks so much for each one here today. Bless, bless each one, God, as we go. It's in his name who died for us, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thanks so much for giving me a few minutes extra today.